Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Monday's edition of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. I am your host, James Murphy, a.k.a. Murph, and you can find me on social media at Murph's underscore Boston ST, where the ST stands for Sports Talk. Ran out of characters with the username for both Twitter and on Instagram, so I had to shorten it up and settle for ST. But what is going on, everybody? Hopefully you enjoyed your beautiful weekend. Hot weather here in New England. Fantastic feels like summer and it's so good because I like hot weather I like it nice and toasty so it's really nice to have the warm weather finally arrived and it's gonna be like 68 or something the other um, couple days from now so it's not gonna last too long but it seems like it is much more consistent than before hopefully you had a great weekend like I mentioned you were able to enjoy the weather what did you do this weekend you go to the beach it seemed like a big popular beach weekend for a lot of folks and if that's the case then congratulations to get into the beach Kim and I went to the beach earlier today to enjoy the weather here in Providence, Rhode Island. We went to a nice local beach, and it was fantastic. Got a nice little tan on, took a little dip in the ocean. It was fantastic. I do kind of want to summarize the way that this episode is going to go, because it's going to be a little wonky and funky. So I'm recording this at 6.13 p.m., literally 17 minutes before puck drops for the Boston Bruins game. So I'm going to kind of chop this episode up a little bit. And before the Bruins game starts, I kind of want to just kind of go over everything that I plan on talking about. If it's kind of quick, I do apologize, but I kind of want to just jam all the stuff that's non-Bruins related before puck drops. And then during each of the intermissions, the first and the second one, and if the game goes in overtime, the third one, I kind of want to talk about the game as the game plays out. You know what that means? You know what I'm saying? So obviously right now, I'm going to kind of go over something that we haven't done in what seems like the longest time, but the quick hits, quick hits is what I'm going to go over now before the puck drops. Then for the first intermission, I will touch briefly upon the unfortunate loss of Game 4 to the New York Islanders in our best of seven series, where the Islanders were able to tie the series up 2-2 two to two by winning Game 4, 4-1. And then also I'm going to talk about the first period for the Bruins and Islanders game that is taking place in the Boston Garden, or I guess the TD Garden, I should say, here in Boston, Massachusetts, be talking about the first period of Game 5 then, and then obviously come the second intermission, probably just be talking more about the Bruins game from that point on, and then once the game once the game is over, whatever it uh, concludes, be talking about the end result, regardless if it's a win-loss, uh, there's no draw at this point, so just win or loss, or win or lose. It's a big game tonight. I'll just start there. It is the biggest game of the year. 
I mentioned during the Capitals series when the Bruins were down one nothing that that game two was the biggest game because you can't afford to go down two nothing. Well, right now it is two to two. If you lose game five, you lose home ice and you face elimination two days from now. So tonight is the biggest game of the year for the Boston Bruins. Everything in the regular season does not matter. It is out the door. Everything that has happened in the playoffs thus far does not matter. You have to look ahead to tonight's game and win tonight's game to put the Islanders on the brink of elimination because I don't know if you can go back to New York and win game six with your life on the line. But I'll go more into that as I talk more about game four and obviously game five as it plays out. But for my quick hits, quick hits. I want to talk about a few topics that kind of unraveled over the weekend. And the first one, I want to talk about the Red Sox completed the Andrew Benintendi trade from February 10th between the Boston Red Sox, the Kansas City Royals, and the New York Mets. So the Boston Red Sox acquired minor league right-handed pitchers Luis De La Rosa and Grant Gambrell from the Kansas City Royals, as well as a minor league outfielder, Freddy Valdez, from the New York Mets, as the players to be named later in that trade that sent Andrew Benintendi to the Royals on February 10th, 2020. Uh, let's just talk about these three guys real quick. So let's just quickly recap the trade. The Boston Red Sox sent over outfielder Andrew Benintendi to the Kansas City Royals as the Royals sent over Franchi, outfielder Franchi Cordero. And in addition, the Mets sent over Josh Winkowski, I believe that's how you say it. And also the Red Sox uh, sent along a few players to be named later as well, which are yet to be known. However... Oh, and also the Kansas City Royals sent over to the Mets, outfielder Khalil Lee, who's playing very well right now, but that is more Mets related than it is Red Sox related. So in addition to getting Winkowski and Franchi Cordero, the Red Sox were going to acquire three players to be named later. So from the date of execution of the trade on February 10th, they had six months to identify those players to be named later from an agreed upon list of X amount of players between the Royals, Mets, and the Red Sox. But we do have the official breakdown of the trade that I mentioned and that is right-handed pitcher Luis De La Rosa and Grant Gambrell from the Kansas City Royals as long as well as minor league outfielder Freddie Valdez from the New York Mets as those players to be named later. De La Rosa, it's 18, was signed by the Royals out of the Dominican Republic in July of 2018. The right-hander made his professional debut in 2019 with the Dominican Summer League Royals 1 earning the club's Pitcher of the Year award in 12 games with 11 starts that season. He posted a 2.33 ERA uh, with a .197 batting average against a 0.91 whip, 52 strikeouts, 7 walks, and 0 home runs allowed. Gambrell, 23, was selected by the Royals in the third round of the 2019 June draft out of Oregon State University. In 16 games, 15 starts between rookie-level Idaho Falls, and I had to st- hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. I had to stop the recording right there because Kim was walking in and the door was very squeaky. So <laughs> had to stop that, had to edit the squeak out or well, best that I could. But continuing with Gambrel, um, 16 games, 15 starts between rookie level Idaho Falls in 2019 and high A Quad Cities 2020. The right-hander is 3-7 and seven with a 5.62 ERA, 46 strikeouts and 18 walks. Uh, born in Fresno, California. Uh, I don't really care about his high school career. Uh, Valdez, 19, is ranked by MLBs as the Mets' number 14 prospect, signed by the Mets out of the Dominican Republic in July of 2018. The right-hander, right-handed hitter made his professional debut in 2019 
when he was named Sterling Mets Dominican Summer League Player of the Year. That season, he appeared in 57 games with the Mets DSL Club and in three games with the Gulf Coast League team batting .274 with an on-base percentage of .814. 16 doubles, 3 triples, 6 home runs, 40 runs scored, 39 RBIs, 31 walks, and 6 stolen bases are the players the Red Sox will be acquiring to complete the Andrew Benintendi trade that was agreed upon between the Sox, Royals, and Mets on February 10th of 2021. Overall, a lot of people are kind of down on what the Red Sox get in return from both the Royals and the Mets as the players to be named later. I really like De La Rosa, how he's 18 and he's doing fairly well with uh, you know the ERA, keeping the whip you know fairly low, the batting average fairly low. Obviously, 18-year-old can still blossom, boom, or even bust. Valdez, 19. I really like what he has to offer as an outfielder. Also young, you know, Mets number 14th overall prospect. I think he has a lot of potential to be a really good balanced hitter, both contact and power. Obviously, 40 runs, 39 RBIs. He's got 31 walks, so he gets on base. And six stolen bases to kind of show a little bit of that speed. Defensively, I am not too sure about it. But Gambrel being 23, I feel like is a huge gamble. Gambrel is a gamble. <laughs> See what I did there? But yeah, I don't know. I just feel like that... <clears throat> That 5.62 ERA from the Idaho Falls and the quad, the Quad City League, I think is such a turnoff. Him being 23, he's fairly older, so a lot of his development is probably behind him. But maybe have a new, you know, coaching staff, new system could help out. I think he's a high risk, uh, low risk, high reward kind of player. But if he doesn't pan out, then you know, Sox fans are gonna point at you know Hein Bloom for pretty much getting nobody in return for Benintendi. But I do think De La Rosa and Valdez has good potential, you know, especially with their young age and how they could potentially contribute to the Red Sox in two, three, four years or so. I just don't want this trade to be something where it's seen as like the Mookie Betts trade where, you know, the Red Sox didn't get any of the top prospects from the Los Angeles Dodgers. Well, they got Alex Verdugo, who the year prior to the trade in 2020 was the Dodgers number one overall prospect and then Jeter Downs was in I think the mid-teens I think and then Connor Wong who was towards the end of their top 30 prospects Connor Wong you know saw him in spring training he's okay Jeter Downs has a lot of potential being the uh, future second baseman for the Red Sox and I think Alex Verdugo has been fantastic for the Sox in his brief career obviously Mookie Betts is doing Mookie Betts things out in LA so it sucks to have lost that kind of a player Benintendi this year really uh, started off pretty cold and has heated up uh, as the weather has heated up and it's kind of a bummer to see you let go of that kind of a player for Franchi Cordero who sucked with the big club and obviously is performing very well with Worcester so he is a question mark and then Winchkowski he's pitching fairly well down in double A so a lot to yet to be seen you got more prospects back for Benintendi than you did with Betts. But overall speaking, you're just kind of reloading that farm system, bringing in young assets, which is something that you highly lacked of. But it is good to see those assets come back for these players you are trading. Hopefully, two-thirds of them pan out, and I think that's a good, a fair percentage for those prospects because at the end of the day, they are prospects, and not all of them do work out, unfortunately. Let's talk about the big trade in the NFL. So obviously... We all know about Julio Jones leaving Atlanta for whoever, whoever was going to trade for him. 
and we finally have an official deal in place between the Atlanta Falcons and the Tennessee Titans. Oh, such a bummer. I, 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 we spent a lot of time talking about this and how it, this could work for the Patriots and also for a team like the Titans as well as they have the cap space to do it just like you did. However, the deal was between the Titans and the Falcons and not you. So let me go over what the official compensation is in this trade between those two teams. It is Julio Jones and a sixth round draft pick in 2023 to Tennessee and a 2022 second round pick and a 2023 fourth round pick going to Atlanta. You couldn't have done that? You couldn't have made that trade? I mean, like, I don't know. Could Was that trade on the table? Potentially. And the Falcons were just like, hmm, Patriots are projected to be better in the next couple years than the Titans. And these Titans picks will be better. Plus, the Patriots, you know, screwed us 28-3 to in the Super Bowl a few years ago. So, F you guys. We're not going to give you our star, superstar wide receiver. Maybe. I mean, that's absolutely possible that there was some spite there and that you had to give up a first-round draft pick for Julio Jones. Otherwise, they weren't going to give him to you. That's totally possible. Maybe Bill Belichick didn't want to give up these assets, a second-round pick and a third-round, uh, fourth-round pick, excuse me. But you should be able to do that. I mean, if that's what the asking price was, you should have been able to conduct and execute that trade and if you weren't able to pull the trigger on a second round and a fourth round pick next year, bad GMing. And I've been kind of on Bill Belichick for his poor GM skills. Obviously, he kind of shut me up this past offseason as he signed basically everybody with a heartbeat under the sun. We're just going to have to see if this move bites him in the ass because right now your wide receiver core is Nelson Aguilar, Kendrick Bourne, Nikhil Harry, and Jacoby Myers. Oh, Gunnar Oshleski. It's an okay core. It's an okay core, and Julio Jones would have put you over the top, just like he's going to put the Titans over the top, probably win the AFC South handedly, and potentially be a top two seed in the AFC conference. Ah, this one sucks. This one sucks because, you know, with all the moves you made, the Julio uh, trading for Julio Jones or a player like him would have really put the cherry on top and solidify you as a Super Bowl favorite. But you weren't able to get it done, and not all the time does a superstar player become available. So you lost out on Julio Jones, and the Tennessee Titans were able to scoop him up. Hopefully this doesn't bite you in the ass down the road. And the last thing I want to talk about is something that we may have heard of or may not have heard of, and that is a Tom Brady rookie card selling for a record 310 Seven million dollars at auction. Unbelievable, unfreaking believable. I mean, holy smokes! Let me just read you this article real quick about it. This article is from uh, ESPN's Mike Reese, and he states it has been four months since quarterback Tom Brady threw his last pass in a game, helping lead the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to a victory over the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl Fifty Five. But that hasn't stopped him from setting more records. The latest came Friday night, uh, this past Friday, yeah, when a Brady rookie card sold for $3.107 million at the Leland's Mid-Spring Classic auction, marking the most ever paid for a football card in public auction. The price tops the previous record of $2.25 million set just two months ago when another Brady rookie card sold by Leland's. 
The increase reflects the boom the sports card industry continues to experience. Quote, Tom Brady is the GOAT and continues to break records both on and off the playing field. It's only fitting that Brady has set another record for the most expensive football card ever sold in public auction. End quote, said Jordan Gilroy, director of acquisitions at Leland's. The Brady card that sold for $3.107 million is a 2000 Playoff Contenders Championship Rookie Ticket Autograph Edition. It is a high grade of a Mint 9 that the one that Leland sold for $2.25 million earlier this year was a near Mint to Mint 8.5 grade. Brady started his career with the New England Patriots. There are only seven of the Mint 9 examples in existence with none graded higher. Also, the football from Brady's first career touchdown pass sold for $428,842 at the same auction. That was from October 14, 2001, when Brady connected with receiver Terry Glenn for a 21-yard score. The The co-signer of the ball was the fan who caught it after Glenn tossed it into the stands following his celebration. Kind of a jackass to not give the ball to Tom Brady. A. B. I'm not exactly sure which grading company is grading these two cards. If it's PSA, if it's Beckett, not exactly sure. SGC maybe, I mean, who knows. But one thing I do kind of want to reflect about this is that the sport card industry has taken a massive boom over the past 18 or so months, and it just continues and continues to grow. Whoever bought this card at auction is clearly doing it for the investment piece, as Tom Brady will break the passing yard record that Drew Brees set this past year. Brady only needs like a thousand or so to pass it and he will easily do so potentially even during week four when Brady and the Bucks come to Foxborough. With the conclusion of me talking about this Brady rookie card selling for a record $3.107 million, when the doors are open and the business is up and running, don't forget to check out Murph's Card Town and Sports Shop. Obviously, I will be updating you as more and more information comes about that. But like I've mentioned previously, this podcast is a segue to Murph's Car Town and Sports Shop, where I'll be having, obviously, sports cards, trading cards, and sports memorabilia there. So it's good to see that Brady has broke two records in two months. It just shows the growth and the uh, the boom of the sports card industry, and it's continuing to grow and boom as well. So I know that was kind of rather long, quick hits, quick hits. but we had to talk about all these topics. It was a must. It was a necessity. And the Bruins are about to start relatively soon. So I'm going to pause it here and I will get back to you during the first intermission. It's going to be a little bit, a little while for me, but for you, it's going to be instantaneous. And just like that, I am back after 20 full minutes of the Bruins and Islanders game five here at the Garden in Boston. And what a doozy we have in this game. The Bruins controlled the entirety of of that first period and honestly shut down any Islanders offensive opportunities. It was crazy. It was nuts. All it seemed like all four lines and all three defensive lines were just attacking the puck, going after any loose pucks, 50, 50 pucks. We were always in the Islanders end of the ice. It just felt so good. It felt like pure, pure Bruins hockey. And on top of that, we were delivering Big hits, getting the crowd going, really wearing down the Islanders, and you can kind of and you were able to see the fatigue a little bit from all these hits from the first four games that started to take place. And 
the way the Bruins were playing, you would think that there are no you know fatigue in them, and you can kind of see a little bit of fatigue in the Islanders after one. And speaking of that, it is currently one to one. Bruins scored a goal. David uh, David Pasternak, to be exact, with like five minutes or so into the game. Uh, it was a great play from uh, Marchand to McAvoy, I believe it was. So I have it right here. Yeah, to McAvoy, and then to Pasternak, who eventually scored. And then the Islanders would score. Matthew uh, Barzell would score on a power play from a dumbass. Uh, who was it? Uh, why can't I find his name? Sean Corrali slashing call. I'm not sure who had. It wasn't a breakaway. It was like a. Ooh, Jesus. <laughs> I'm getting a little excited over here. It was like a three on two for the Islanders. And Corrali's coming back as the third guy for the Bruins. Uh and he just goes to, I don't, like I said, I don't remember who was taking the shot for the Islanders, but he goes and like kind of hits the stick of the guy, didn't impact the shot, didn't break the stick, and they call it a slashing on him. And that dumbass call would eventually lead to an Islanders goal. Oh, one-to-one, but the Bruins have so much momentum right now, and I really feel like that the way that this game is going, I don't know if the Islanders can keep up because... They just aren't able to score 5-on-5. I really don't think so. Almost all of their goals, the Islanders, almost all of them have come on the power play for them. And just a couple of 5-on-5 goals, I believe. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. But as long as you stay out of the penalty box, they're not going to score. And as long as you keep that energy up, you're going to be good to go. You substituted Carson Coleman for Jake DeBrusque, which is something I've been preaching for. Finally, gives you good speed, gives you good energy. Especially to if you really want to raise the energy and raise the roof here in the garden, you're gonna need his fast, uh, fast legs out there instead of Jake DeBrusque's slow molasses. Ugh. Right. So let me just quickly recap Game Three real quick. Absolute depressor of a game. Bruins lost Game Four, uh, four to one. It wasn't really four to one. It was actually more like two to one. The last two goals for the Islanders were empty netters. So officially four to one, but. We all know it was 2-1, to one, so let's just be honest. We saw a goal, uh, this lone goal by David Krejci, assisted by Marshan and Pasternak. Uh, beautiful little goal, kind of trickled around in the front. No one saw it except Krejci. He goes to score, and then the Islanders would get goals from Matthew Barzell, Casey Sezikis, uh, uh, Pajot, and Kyle Palmieri. Oh, my God. It is just freaking miserable. That game was so miserable. It was high-intensity. Low scoring for the majority of the game. And then just towards the end, they got a cheeky-ass goal. I don't remember what the situation was, you know, because I'm just trying to erase it from my memory. But the Bruins, you know, the Islanders, I'm sorry, yeah, the Islanders came out with a lot of good energy. The Bruins were able to match it. It seemed like the Bruins were going to be able to kind of squeak away with that game. I believe they drew first blood in that game. They scored first, and I believe in almost all of them, except maybe game two, I think. I don't know. Don't, don't. You know, quote me exactly on that, but definitely let me know down in the comments or on social media, if uh, regardless how you're listening or watching. But yeah, game four, absolute shitter of a game. Tuka Rask again was nails. I mean, just like those last two goals, they don't count obviously against him. Tuka Rask going 30 for 32, allowing just those two goals. And Semyon uh, Varlamov going 28 for 29, just allowing the one goal. You got to get 40 shots on net. You got to keep peppering them. And in this game tonight, Pasternak scored within like the first uh, handful of minutes. 
and I believe Varlamov has given up a goal in four out of five games on the first three shots. So once he gives up that first goal, he is nails, and you have to just keep pounding the net. You just got to put pucks on net, keep uh, going for 50-50 pucks, you know, work on the rotations for if a guy is going for that 50-50 puck, know where to rotate and be to replace so there's no empty holes in your defense, whether it's in your blue zone or if it's in the neutral ice area, because if you can get to those 50-50 pucks, you might be able to squeak one, you know, to a certain spot where you can generate some offense and go from there. Because the less opportunities that they have, the more opportunities you will have to put the pucks on the net and hopefully put pucks in the net. Being one-to-one right now after one period, I feel really solid about the Bruins in this game. Like I said, that dumbass goal from the Islanders was just a dumbass. I mean, I, I just, I have, I'm a loss of words, folks. I just, I am a firm believer that that was not slashing. You cannot call pen, uh, penalties here and there. You have to be consistent. Either call them all or don't call any. There's just, don't pick and choose which ones you want to call. Call them all or call none. And so far in this game, they were calling nothing except that dumbass slashing. Oh, come on. That's just weak officiating. And uh, it, it, it results in a goal. It results in a goal. And in game five, where the series is now essentially a best of three, you, you just hate to see that. And you can't afford something like that because otherwise it'd be one nothing going into the second period or going into the first intermission, I should say, where you had all the energy, all the momentum. The crowd was into it. You were hitting. You were playing physical. You were playing your style of uh, hockey, your offense, your schemes, your style. Everything was going right. Then you get this dumbass penalty, and then they get a stupid goal. Everything is sucked right out of you. So at the end of the day, going into the second period, I feel really good as long as the Bruins come out with that same energy that they came out in the first. If not, and they come out flat like they did in game, oh, when was it, game two, I think it was, where they came out just straight garbage, straight garbage, flat, lifeless, energyless. And yeah, and I think that's when they the Islanders scored their handful of goals. Then they should be able to be uh, put another goal or two on the board. They've gotten all the chances in the world. Marshan almost had a goal where it just kind of uh, skips across that you know that red line. Pasternak has had a couple of shots. I think uh, who was I think Corral even had a couple of chances. Let's just go over the shots real quick. Pasternak with two, Marshan, Clifton, Coyle with one each, Coolman with two. Lozon with one, Smith with one, and Chris Wagner with one shot himself. I believe Chris Wagner was also fairly close to scoring. So uh, you have 11 shots right now entering the second period, and they only have seven. You have score, You have way more scoring chances than they do, and that just derives from the energy and the effort that you are bringing to the ice and going for these pucks. So you have to stay on it. You can't take this period off. You have to go at it because the Islanders, they're a tough, gritty team. They have a tough, good goalie, and you got to be able to kind of play harder and play more efficiently than them because they're a team that will dance with you for a while and then will capitalize on a mistake. And that mistake was that, oh, that stupid Sean Corrali slashing. I don't think it's, it, I'm not going to blame him. I don't, I, like I said, I don't think it was slashing, so I'm not going to blame him. I just think it was a stupid ass call by the ref. But that's me uh, done ranting. 
what I'm looking forward to going into the second period. Obviously, when this podcast comes out, the game will be over. So you'll when this podcast comes out, you'll, you'll probably know whether or not the Bruins won or lost. But just keep with the energy in this game. Keep hitting. Keep playing your style of offense. Be physical. Be efficient. Go for the 50-50 pucks and just limit their offensive opportunities. And I think you should be able to win game five. I don't want to say easily. I don't want to say handedly. But you should be able to win. Period. So that's going to do it for, I guess, my little first intermission report of game five. I will catch you at the end of the second period for the second intermission and then we'll just kind of go from there i'm not exactly sure how long this podcast episode will be but it will be out today on monday at some point in time hopefully you'll be able to enjoy it monday night or even tuesday tuesday morning afternoon or whatever but i will catch you at the end of the second period for the second intermission all right i am back after the second period as we enter the second intermission and literally all i have to say is stop giving up power play goals. Stop going into the goddamn box for dumb, stupid penalties. The other two that were called, uh, the one on Chris Wagner and the one on Grizzlick, absolutely, uh, what was it, cross-checking and then uh, slashing? I forget what the one uh, Chris Wagner had, but... They were clean calls. They were the correct calls, unlike the Sean Corrales one. And the Islanders are 3-4-3 three, three on the power play. 3-4-3 three, three on the power play, where one goal did come in 5-on-5 five five play. They still, predominantly, are not a, uh, a full-strength scoring team. Just look at tonight's game as a prime example. 75% of their goals, their three other four goals, have come on the power play. If you can keep them to even strength, you have a great chance of them not scoring. And speaking of scoring, the Bruins had ample, ample opportunities to score one, two, three, four goals in this period. And Semyon Varlamov for the Islanders has just been absolute nails. Making left saves, right saves, high saves, low saves, uh, glove saves, stick saves, so whatever. Unbelievable. He is a brick wall, and just like the first period, we've had some little couple squirts and little bounces here and there that just haven't gone our way. And the Islanders are getting all the good bounces, all of the you know, the good breaks here, and we're getting absolutely porked in that regard. T- disgusting, disgusting period for the Bruins, and that's not because of a lack of energy. They came out buzzing, they came out hitting and being physical, like I mentioned. They had a tremendous offensive scoring opportunities, like six or so minutes straight of just being in the Islanders' end, pounding shots where Varlamov was just blocking them. You got to execute. You have to execute that. And as you enter the third period, finally being on the power play, well, I guess you have 50 seconds or so left of the power play. You'll have clean ice. You got to get a goal in. I mean, you're down 4-2 to two with 20 minutes left to go in a critical game five. You have to absolutely have to score on this power play because I like I've said all playoffs long if you're down one goal that's doable but being down two goals is tough and the Bruins were down two goals uh, before and they almost came back to win but you just don't want to put yourself in that kind of situation you want to try to make this game even again 4-4 fresh brand new game you'll have all the momentum and go from there because right now the way that the Bruins are playing 
all right, Bogey, chill out. But the way that the um the Bruins are playing right now, I have no complaints. The only complaint that I have is you're giving them power play opportunities for stupid penalties. Stop it. And as long as you can eliminate that, you should be good to go. Defense has been <sighs> not that good. Just going to be honest with you. Turning the puck over in their own end, not being able to clear it out, it's just resulting in too many opportunities. But speaking of opportunities, when the Islanders are 5-on-5, five five, there hasn't been that many. It's only just on the power play. So ultimately, Bruins have to take advantage of these offensive opportunities and these chances and put the puck in the net. Name of the game. Got to put the puck in the net in order to win. Varlamov has been incredible, but you have to find a way to break him down again. You already got two, and you'll be on the power play for 50 more seconds, so maybe you can get something, but I don't know. I, I really like the chances the Bruins had leaving the first period, going into the second, but right now, not to be a Debbie Downer, but you know how realistic I, I like to keep things. I don't know how confident I am feeling going into this third period. I mean, I'm trying to be optimistic here. But it's just super difficult when you're giving up stupid penalties for no apparent reason, resulting in, in three Islander goals. You take all those power plays opportunities away from them, it is two to one you with the power play coming up. And you know what? One power play goal happens. I get it. So maybe two, two. Sure. You can convince me of that. But the Bruins were, I believe, the second best penalty kill team. In the National Hockey League, entering the playoffs, I think behind Las Vegas. That has where's that been? Where has that been in this game or in this series, for that matter of fact? I mentioned at the start of the series when we found out that we were going to play the New York Islanders. I said the Islanders cannot score five on five. They are a power play team. That is where they score, and they've proven that in this series, in this game, and you knew that going in. So shut it down and go get me a goal and then go get me another and hopefully we can get it to four to four brand new game all the momentum all the energy the crowd's roaring the team is uh buzzing and we just gotta go from there all right <sighs> super depressing super deflating you uh go up one nothing give up two unanswered then you tie it two two crowds back in it and then you give up two damn Goals. Two more goals. Ugh. It just sucks the life right out of you. Third period, you have to come out with electricity and score. Plain and simple. I guess I will see you at the end. You can just hear the tone of my voice. I can just hear it and you'll listen to myself as I'm recording this. It, it just, it's just deflating. It's upsetting. It's depressing. And... Hopefully, the Bruins can kind of change the narrative of this one, but we will have to wait and see. Hopefully, I come back at the end of the game or the third intermission, if there is one, much more positive and such, but we just won't know until the end of the game. So, I guess I will see you in three, two, one. The Bruins lost game five. Oh, my God. All right, as you know... As you know, Bruins officially lost 5-4 to four 
to the New York Islanders, where the Islanders take a 3-2 to two series lead as the series shifts back to New York for Game 6 on Wednesday night. First of all, let me start off with this. Start of the third period, Tuka Rask gets pulled. Done. Now, obviously, we talked about this before. Leaving Game 3, there was a little bit of a back issue where Swayman may have came in then. But Tuka Rask stayed strong, ended up winning that game, you know, and then we didn't really hear about it. So I really don't think that this is injury related. He was 12 of 16, giving up four goals for a 750 save percentage. That's just him getting pulled is because he sucks. Okay. And Jeremy Swayman making his Stanley Cup playoff debut. Well, his first uh, first shot was a breakaway. I don't even know who the breakaway was by, but it was a breakaway by the Islanders. And he stops it. <laughs> and he stops it. And then like a minute later, whatever, they score their fifth goal of the night. <sighs> Sheesh, man. So depressing. Five to two. Thought the game was a wrap. Bruins score a third goal by Pasternak. Then they score their fourth goal by Krejci. And it's like little oh, five, six minutes left or whatever it was. And it's a one goal game. And you know me, I am a fan of just get it to one. It is doable with one. And you just look at the power play opportunities that they had. For First of all, you got porked by a stupid slash call. Then a greedy cross-checking. And I forget what the other one was. Was the other one cross-checking? I don't even know. Uh, maybe the other one was the slash. I don't, I don't remember. What, with the one by Chris Wagner and then the one by... Um, Grizzly, right? <sighs> three for three on the power play. And then obviously we finally stopped when Patrice Bergeron goes in for a delay of game, hitting the puck out of bounds. Oh my God, man. Oh my God. <sighs> Charlie McAvoy, three points, all assists, five shots. David Pasternak, two goals, one assist, five shots. Marchand, one, one each, two shots on net. Bergeron, one assist, five shots. Krejci, one goal, two shots. Riley, assist, two shots. Smith, uh, assist, three shots. Clifton, two shots. Taylor Hall, five shots. Haven't heard his name in the scorebook in a long time. Basically, your top six forwards were close a handful of times. And when it got to that point in the game, it was important to have them out there and not the third and the fourth lines. Um, Coolman had three. Corrali had three shots. And that's really it for notables. Swayman. Three saves on four shots in his debut. With Tuka Rask being pulled in the third game, that brings the question. With your life on the line entering enemy territory, going to New York for an elimination game, your first game facing elimination of the Stanley Cup playoffs here in 21, who is your goaltender? Do you stick with Tuka Rask and just say, hey, wasn't his night three power plays three goals you know these are some mistakes that the skaters can fix or do you go with the potential future of jeremy swayman and just hope that he doesn't shit himself me personally so here's what i want here's what i think what i want is tuka who i think is also Tuca. There's just no way 
No way Bruce Cassidy sits down at his desk or whatever and consciously says that this kid, Jeremy Swayman, will get his first career National Hockey League Stanley Cup playoff start in an elimination game in New York for game six. There's no way he can consciously be okay with that decision and have faith in that decision. Tuka Rask, say what you want about him. He is the winningest goaltender in Bruins history for the playoffs, has been in enemy territory before. He has won games there. He has lost games there. You have to stick with Tuka. Say what you want about him. You have to stick with him because Tuka has been through the fire before. He knows what it takes. He's done it before. And yes, on the other side of the coin, he has failed before. But Jeremy Swayman, I mean, just look at Dan Vladar last year. You throw that kid in the fire, and he's going to be a fucking uh, a puddle. He's going to be an ocean. They're just gonna, and the Islanders are going to just hit the puck into the ocean, right, for goals. And if he gives up a couple goals, his confidence, his psyche, his mentality is all going to be shot, and you, have, and you could potentially ruin a young goaltender. Getting him a little experience here, you know what? I'm okay with that. That one goal... It is just, you know, bing, bop, boop in the front of the net, and they just put it in. The defense in this game was horrendous. The uh, the penalty kill unit, horrendous. These are mistakes that you need to fix. Yes, I know a couple bad bounces, um, pucks deflection, whatever, here and there resulted in a couple goals. It seems like to be a traditional thing at this point for the Islanders. That's not really a miscue on your behalf, but, you know, for the majority of this game, for the majority, yeah, for the majority of the game, these are things you can control. You can fix it. Go to the film room. Go to the practice rink. These are things that you can fix and control. And you're going to have to if you want any chance at winning. I think that they can. Come game six in New York, I think that the Bruins can do it. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be 20 guys in the coaching staff. Everybody else is going to be against you. The 20 guys in the coaching staff for the Islanders and all 18 or whatever thousand fans in that uh, in Nassau Coliseum. That's just how it is. That's it's it's going to be you against the world, literally against the world. It's going to be tough. And if it means anything, we've seen the Bruins be down 3 to 2 in the playoffs before and win game 6 on the road. Last saw it in the 2019 Stanley Cup Finals against the St. Louis Blues. I'm not going to talk about what happened in game 7, but still you lose game five at home. You go to uh, St. Louis game six and you win there. Not going to talk about game seven, but still you lose game five here against the Islanders. You have obviously have to go out and win game six and we'll get to game seven when we get there. But honestly, defense, dumb penalties. I guess the penalty kill units and the goaltending. Those are my, I, you know, I usually have three keys or three points to the game, whatever. Those are going to be my four points going into game six. And obviously, I'll talk more about this on, on Wednesday's episode of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. But those four things need to be addressed. And additionally, I guess you want to throw in a fifth one. You have to find secondary scoring from your other forward lines. You cannot rely on Patrice Bergeron, David Pasternak, and Brad Marchand the entire game. Krejci has been playing very well this series. You know, I'll throw him into that that pool. But Taylor Hall needs to step up. Craig Smith has had a couple goals in the playoffs so far, as did Taylor Hall, but they've been relatively quiet. 
And then, you know, obviously, Charlie Coyle had a goal. What was it, game four, the start of that game? Other than that, I mean, we saw Jake DeBrusque finally get sat. Carson Kuhlman really didn't make an impact as I thought he would. Nick Ritchie, who I was questioning why he was still out there, but A, who are you going to put in? And B, he gives you a physical presence that's outside of your fourth line because that's usually what your fourth line does. You know, the fourth line was really good, I thought, at the beginning of the game, and then they kind of started to fade a little bit on me. But, I mean, you know, your top two forward lines and your top four defensive pairings got a lot of ice time in this game, and they're definitely going to need to rest tonight, obviously tomorrow. You got to come out with something. You have to come out with that energy that you started the game with here in game five, in game six, and you have to maintain that all 60 minutes. What we saw from the Bruins in the last like 15 minutes of this game and at the start of this game needs to be seen and played, executed all 60 minutes of game six. Otherwise, you will lose. So I don't want to go too much more into game six. I don't want to keep ranting about game five. But the Bruins need need to make adjustments. And we'll definitely talk more about that for hump day. <laughs> I mean Wednesday's edition of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. But reach out to me on social media at Murph's underscore Boston ST where the ST stands for sports talk. Or if you're watching on YouTube, please leave a comment down below. Your thoughts, opinions, concerns, what you think about the Bruins. Do they have a chance? Are they toast? Whatever. I want to hear about it. I want to have a discussion, conversation, a debate, maybe even an argument. If you bring the heat, I can take the smoke. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please like the video if you enjoyed today's episode and also hit that big red subscribe button if you're new or haven't considered subscribing yet to the channel. Also, don't forget to uh, listen to me on Syncify. It is a new podcasting platform that I am on. They reached out to me last week or so and they're like, hey, we love your podcast. We want to get it on our platform. I was like, absolutely. Let's make this happen. And so it did. So reach uh Reach out to me there. You can listen to me there. But whatever platform works for you, it works for me. All right. So enough of me for Monday's episode. I hope you have a great couple days. But between now and then, you know that I love you. And you know that I will always... big money when you start your next project today at menards check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock ready to take home today we carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest menards you can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on menards.com save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.